Welcome to the initial Both Sides TV program. It's the inaugural episode, and for this episode, I'm incredibly excited to welcome Amit Kapoor, who just sold his company recently, Gravity, uh, to AOL. Is it a specified number in the public? Over 90 million. I don't Over know what the specified number is. You, yeah. you, you know what it, it is. It could be 90.0001, or it could be 190. We'll never yeah. tell. Yeah. Um, but I really appreciate uh, you tuning in today. We're actually now filming the show in front of a live audience at General Assembly Los Angeles. If you ever want to attend, we're going to publicize when the dates are, and we'd love to have you attend in person. So let's get kicked off, Ahmed. So you have been in LA for how long? Um, 11 years. 11 years. Yeah. And I seem to remember you actually went to Stanford. I did. And you studied what at Stanford? Mechanical engineering. Mechanical engineering. And after a mechanical engineering degree at Stanford, uh, and you grew up in South, South Dakota. Dakota, that's yeah. what I thought. Yeah. Uh, you decided my choices are LA or South Dakota <laughs> or stay local. Like, how did it come about that you came down to Los Angeles in the first place? It was, uh, it was, I think like a lot of people, it was kind of happenstance. So I, when I graduated, it was 2003. Um, the market for tech companies or anybody graduating right then, anybody with an engineering degree was really hard up in the Bay Area. And my best friend lived down in LA, so I came down and crashed on his parents' couch until I found a job. I think it's ironic for any millennials, they probably don't remember that there was that period of time where in the Bay Area, if you were technical, oh, you couldn't get a job. It's brutal. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It was... Uh, um, every, it was kind of depressing up there at yeah. the time, actually. I mean, it, when I joined, I, I started going to school there in 99, and it was amazing, right? Yeah. There, were, there were job fairs everywhere. They were encouraging us to drop out of school and <laughs> join all these companies. Yeah. And, uh, and then during that whole period while I was there, the Bay Area economy, the tech economy kind of collapsed. Yeah. And it was a completely different story when I left. And did you come down here knowing about a young emerging company called MySpace, or did you find it once you got down here? No, I found it once I was down here. I, when I came down, I actually, um, you know, I, I didn't know what I wanted to do. Yeah. And I looked at, you know, I was in LA, and I thought this is a, an entertainment town. So I went and I got a job at NBC. And um, I did that for a year. I did not like working at a big company. And I was going to go back up north to the valley because I wanted to join a startup, maybe go to business school. Uh, and that was when I, I came across an email about MySpace. And I looked into the company. I thought it was cool. And you joined. And how many employees were there at MySpace at the time? I don't remember the specific number, but I want to say 30-ish, something like that. And yeah. what year is this? 2000 and 2005, early five. 2005. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. So what was your original role at MySpace? So uh, it was. It was kind of funny the way I went into the company. So I got an email about a junior marketing position. And I didn't know anything about marketing, but I liked the company. So I went in to interview. I was able to finagle my way in. Yeah. And the head of marketing at the time, Jamie, who you know. Yes. Well, Jamie uh, Kantrowitz. Yeah. So Jamie and I had a great interview. And at the end, she was like, what are you interviewing for this role for? Yeah. So she walks me over to Chris, the CEO's office. And he and I hit it off, talked for a few hours. And this is Chris DeWolf. Chris DeWolf, yeah. And uh, they didn't have anybody doing business development, which was what I had been doing for you know a very long period of one year at, a, <laughs> at, uh, at NBC. And so he asked me to come in and run business development. So basically, what you're saying is Jamie Kantrowitz is responsible for your entire career. <laughs> <laughs> Jamie would like to believe yeah. that. And I have to give her credit for, uh, for walking me over to Chris. So yeah, definitely, no, yeah, she's fantastic. Yeah. So give us some perspective. I mean, we all know MySpace as the company that had 
a meteoric rise and a meteoric fall. Uh, give us a sense of what it was like back then. Did you have scale? Did you have a lot of users? Did you have? Yeah. Um, or were they still selling face cream? Yeah. Let <laughs> me talk about that. Um, at the time, it wasn't clear what was going to happen with the company, right? It was sort of in this heated battle with Friendster, and nobody really knew how big a social network could get. I, I remember when I started there, um, every you know a lot of my friends, family, anybody was would say, "You're crazy. Nobody's going to put their name or their photo up online," you know. And, and and you guys could probably can remember back to this time, but I thought there was something really powerful about it, and I thought that this notion of both having an identity online along with having a place to express yourself online and put up media was a really powerful thing and uh and so i just sort of joined because i thought that was cool you know i thought it, i thought it you know like anything like who knows how, how big a search company could get right yeah. back in the day um and uh and for a lot of us there you know it just started to build up steam and build steam and we were the, the amount of momentum and traffic that, of, of people that were joining the site um, started to just kind of explode. And, and, and I would just say, just a quick pause, if you have the opportunity to watch the film We Live in Public, has anyone watched the movie We Live in Public? So there's a gentleman named Josh Harris. Have you heard mm -hmm. of Josh Harris? No. Nope. So Josh Harris is actually a fraternity brother of mine from UC yeah. San Diego, although he was there about 10 years before me. And when he got out, he forecast that the whole world was going to start publishing their lives online. So he went out, he created an internet company in New York City. It was hugely successful. I think it was called Jupiter Communications and uh, made tens if not, well, tens of millions of dollars in personal wealth. And he sunk it all back into a startup to try and create public broadcasting of your lives. Yeah. And he forecast not only social media, but YouTube, Vine, all the things that we now take for granted. And I think it's just worth pointing out because often when people talk about these really forward thinking concepts, like maybe today virtual reality right. and trying to imagine a world in which we don't fly because it feels like you and I are next to each other, but we're not, mm -hmm. um, could be pretty profound about how we communicate in the future. But anyway, yeah. I just thought I'd recommend that to people now. When did you know MySpace was really arcing up? Because Friendster, if I'm not mistaken, their problem was they were really slow yeah. because they had complex database queries mm -hmm. and because they tied you to a real identity. In MySpace, you could be anything, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, it was interesting. It was sort of a, it was a couple things there. So one, uh, certainly Friendster was really slow, and that was a huge uh, uh, advantage that we had um, in just being able to keep the site up. You know, yeah. Friendster would go down like crazy. There actually came a point in MySpace's history where we would struggle to keep the site up, and we knew from our experience having battled Friendster that if there was one thing that was really important is making sure that you know you didn't have the fail whale or you know 404ing everybody. Um, the but the other aspect, you know, Friendster was tied to more of a real identity. Um, MySpace was this expressive persona, and I think when you think about how we kind of became comfortable putting ourselves online. MySpace was a step down that path, right. right? Like you were a lot more comfortable putting up this pseudo identity of yours where you could express yourself. It was easy. It didn't have to have these family photos and you, yourself geotagged. And, and so uh, it, it got you comfortable, you know, having an online identity and presence. And, uh, and then, you know, with Facebook, which we'll talk about, I'm sure, in the future, they, they sort of took it down the path even further of, of resurfacing that real identity. Right. And people called it Fakester originally, didn't they? 
Uh, I don't remember you that. You don't remember that? No. Okay. Yeah. I think yeah. that was it. it was <laughs> Friendster and Fakester is what I seem to remember. Yeah. And uh, I had heard that part of the way that MySpace built out its international community strategy was by launching parties in cities and inviting a whole bunch of young people mm -hmm. to come to a party and that actually offline aggregation of crowds had a lot of uh, the driving force behind MySpace's expansion. Is any of that yeah, true? Yeah, there's some truth to it. Um, if you think about MySpace's growth early on, uh, a lot of it was kind of culturally driven, right? Yeah. Like we had a huge music presence, for yeah. example. I, actually, that was one of the things I did. I ran MySpace Music for, for a okay. time. And we, um, we would grow, like, you know, music, musicians and artists are kind of like, you know, if you think about like a hub and spoke, they're this hub that can pull in millions, you know, thousands or hundreds, depending on the scale of the artist, uh, uh, of, of people into the, into the larger social network. And, and, and it kind of grew up with this sort of, this, in, in this sort of, sort of grassroots expansion. And when we went overseas, it, we tried to apply a similar strategy. So we would go into markets and we would hire kind of cultural ambassadors. Uh, we would try to connect with local musicians and artists and then um, you know, throw events, throw parties that would try to kind of pull people into that, that cultural phenomenon. And it, it didn't work as well right. internationally, scale-wise, but it worked very well in the so US. So interesting thing, I think, for a lot of people in this room and people who are listening online, I think the quintessential Silicon Valley company likes to think you can launch something, it takes off, you don't really have to think about how you really stimulate the market. I spent a bunch of private time with Sean Ratt, mm -hmm. uh, the founder of Tinder. Uh, you may know I funded his previous company and I was trying to get his lessons learned from Tinder. And it mirrors a lot of the stories that I heard from Travis Katz and from Jamie Kantrowitz and other people about MySpace and these social events. So Tinder told me that the way they expanded to new markets was almost by velvet rope, which was go to, let's say, Caracas, or mm -hmm. you go to Buenos Aires, and you would find the top 50 influencers in town, and then you'd have a private party where they could each invite only five people. Mm -hmm. And in order to come to the party, you actually had to have Tinder downloaded on your phone. Mm -hmm. So in that way, they got like 250 to 500 of the most influential people in any city mm -hmm. um, with Tinder on their phone, using it, talking about it. And from there, it would spiral out. You couldn't just proactively sign yourself up for Tinder. You had to have one of those people invite you. Yeah. yeah. And so he told me they drove a lot more organic usage because of that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's definitely a lot of growth strategies involved in, the, in, in that. Like, you know, one scarcity sometimes can be to your advantage if, if people think that there's some exclusivity and it's hard to get in. You know, yeah. you, you, you build up buzz around your product that way. Um, you know, getting influencers on board obviously is something that can be meaningful as well. But, you know, there's a, there's a lot of different strategies to extend. I mean, Facebook had a, a very, you know, effective okay. one, yeah, <laughs> which wasn't around parties or events. But, but it was uh, exclusive. It, there, there was because the network effect. Because you had effect, to be yeah. at a university. Yep. It yeah. had to initially be a named university. And I think yeah. they did that until they hit a certain scale. Yeah, yeah it, 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 it ensured a high quality network, yeah, you know, very early sure. on. And then when they opened up, now you have potential quality issues, actually. Like, same thing with Twitter. Yeah. As well. Now, you did BizDev, you ran MySpace Music, 
And then you eventually found yourself in a quite senior role in the yeah. company. Why yeah. don't you talk about the journey to get there, what that role was, and sure. what it was like? So when I started, I was uh, running business development, which at the time, I mean, I think for a lot of you guys that are at startups, your, your role means many things in the company. You're always doing many different things. For me, it was I was the guy, whenever there was a business deal, um, something that was more complex than just a sales deal, I would get brought in and I would help figure it out and get the deal done. Um, I did a lot of partnerships for the company. I did a lot of our biggest sales deals and made the company a bunch of money. I had uh, great relationships with everybody. And uh, a little bit after the News Corp acquisition, I was thinking about leaving to go start a new company or do something different. And Chris DeWolf, the CEO, um, you know, I was always very close to him. He was a mentor of mine. And uh, I told him, and he at the time asked me to come on as a COO. And so that was the number two role at the company. I was 25 or 6, and I, I couldn't turn that down, so I stayed for another year. I can imagine. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and the COO role as it was at MySpace, how many employees did they have by that time? Roughly how many yeah. end users to your memory? So the company was, uh, I think, a little over 2,000 employees. Um, end users, we probably were uh, approaching, if not greater than 100 million. Um, and uh, my groups, I think I had, you know, eight, nine hundred people under me in my different departments that I ran. So small team. Yep. And uh, <laughs> in terms of how you organize your daily work, what, yeah. did your job mostly consist of putting out fires, or was it yeah. team leadership, or was it thinking about revenue, or? Yeah. Um, so uh, I took quite a bit of my approach to management from how Chris approached management, which was hire you know, an incredible team underneath you of people that are much more capable than you at what they're doing, much better at you than what they're doing, and you can kind of step back and focus on the things that were strategically kind of the priority and of, of utmost importance at the time. And so I, you know, I brought on guys like you know, you know Jason Oberfest, course, for example. Yeah. So Jason took over business development for me, uh, Tish uh, Whitcraft. Uh, she ran a global customer support for Yahoo, and so I brought her on to run customer support for us. So people like that, um, when you have people in those roles, uh, I, I didn't have to, I, I'm not a micromanager by any means, I didn't have to do much besides work with them and figure out what the right strategy was that aligned with the larger company strategy, and then help them solve problems. And then I could focus on what I found either the most fun or what was the biggest priority for the company at the time. And. Uh, without a detailed uh, psychoanalysis, mm -hmm. what do you think are the two or three missteps of MySpace? Why didn't MySpace become yeah. Facebook? Um, I, well, I don't, it's really like to paraphrase, Ben Horowitz has a quote that he says, uh, there's no silver bullet, it's a bunch of lead bullets, when he's talking about success in that case. But I think the same thing here, there's no silver bullet that kind of killed MySpace, it was a bunch of lead bullets. And, and some of those, to me, one of the biggest ones was a prioritization of short-term revenue over product innovation. And so once we uh, joined News Corp, I think this is a standard sort of pitfall of any public company. Um, you are judged by these quarterly objectives, right? Of how how's the company's how are the company's revenues growing this quarter, the next quarter? And so uh, we started to get these quarterly goals that were based on constant, you know, continuous revenue growth. And when you want to innovate, sometimes you have to be willing to sacrifice short-term revenue for long-term gains. And so examples could be things like, um, I don't know if you remember, when you would send a message on MySpace, there were like, literally like eight 
five to eight steps, I don't remember the exact number, before you could actually get that message sent. Well, at the same time, Facebook you know, applied Ajax, and you'd click a button, and you'd send the message. Everything would happen on one interface. But the reason that was done uh, was to create more page views for more ad impressions, to one, you know, juice up the overall revenues on the site, also to fulfill page view guarantees that we had with other partners. Right. Um, so it, it hurt the user experience. Right. And in time, so people are going to. there are times a trade off between revenue mm -hmm. and usability. Yeah. And revenue, when it doesn't come at the expense of user yeah. interaction, yeah. not so bad. Yep. Uh, when it creates a more hostile user experience, yeah. you're vulnerable, I guess. It's absolutely true. I think, I think you know, one way to think about it is not creating friction in the user experience, right? Like the best. Uh, consumer internet companies are ones uh, that, you know, if you look at how Google monetizes their page, it's, there's no friction in the sponsored link with the organic results. In fact, the sponsored link is one that you might want to click on because it's what you're searching for, right? right. Um, so I'd say that, you know, that's definitely one big point. Um, another, another thing I think, there was some culture clash with yeah. News Corp, right? And uh, and you know, I think there's enough distance between <laughs> that event that I could talk about it a little more okay. openly. But um, you know, News Corp's a very big, very successful company, but they've got these very traditional models for how they operate. I mean, it was a news com newspaper company to start yeah. with, and here we were a very fast-paced internet company. I mean, we're kids wearing you know jeans and t-shirts. Not necessarily all kids, but like you know, this was our our culture was move fast. You know, like you know, break things. You know, innovate. Um, uh, push, you know, push boundaries, not let's create a deck and go through a budget approval process and try to get a sense for what's the ROI on building this new photo product. Um, you know, you, you can't do that. Now, if I talk about ecosystems, mm -hmm. uh, MySpace was fairly open initially. Many people don't know, but the rise of YouTube happened more on MySpace than on Facebook. 100%, yeah. Uh, the rise of uh, Flickr yep. and uh, what was the one you guys eventually bought? Fox? Photo Bucket. Photo Bucket. Yeah. And uh, from what I heard from pretty reliable sources, uh, Rupert tried to buy YouTube. Mm -hmm. He wasn't able to because Fox didn't have the currency in terms of share price that uh, YouTube did, mm -hmm. and that in terms that Google did. And I think Google paid $1.65 billion for it. Mm -hmm. And Rupert then said, I'm not going to create any more internet, like millionaires, on the back of MySpace. And from what I'm told, there was a movement to try and shut down the platform services of MySpace. And that juxtaposed at Facebook in 2008 with their F8 conference, which was all about an open platform, mm -hmm. which they then took away. Mm -hmm. But uh, any truth to that? Or you didn't see any of that kind of? Well, I can't comment on specifics of or not the strategy. Specifics on Rupert, but do you yeah. think like um, closed platform, open platform back then? Well, played any role? I, no, you know, I remember there were a lot of contentious debates that we had closed platform, open platform, and it's interesting. Uh, you see so you, you see successful examples of both, you know, yeah. in technology, and then you see you know uh, companies that fell apart because of the strategy that they took. So you know, Apple 
very successful, you know, closed system now, a bit more open, uh, but not as open as the, the broader internet. You know, Facebook the same way, a bit closed, a little bit open, like they've seemed to have found feels, a bit of balance. It feels like there. the arc of most successful tech firms these days is start open so everybody loves you, yeah. gain just enough critical mass and momentum yeah. that users are going to stay with you, and then shut down and squash everybody out of the ecosystem. <laughs> I mean, yeah. it's kind you of see, Facebook, it's kind of uh, yeah. Twitter, it's at the same time, to, to their credit, it, it's difficult to find the right balance because um, if you go so open it, it, that your platform can get spammed, you know, it actually hurts the, the, right. fun, the core user experience. Sure. So, um, uh, you know, there certainly was a lot of debate internally over uh, how do we create the right kind of incentives for developers to want to develop on MySpace, yet at the same time not, um, you know, one, lose out on you know, big business opportunities that we might want to get involved in, and, and two, uh, hurt, hurt the user experience because it's so open that you know, the site's gotten too spammed and is overrun by you know, sparkly slideshows and things like that. So. Uh, as we go through, I'm going to shift pretty soon to talking about Gravity, mm -hmm. uh, the next place that you worked. Uh, you found it. Mm -hmm. uh, if you have MySpace questions that you want to know, feel free to raise your hand. I'll do my best to spot you. Uh, otherwise, I'll just plow through. But yeah. Um, yeah, for your international rollout. So what was it effective, right? The cultural ambassadors and musicians reaching out to them wasn't. So what so the question is, what in an international work if the music and cultural ambassadors didn't? Because MySpace was successful internationally for a period of time. Yeah, I think that. Um, so if you look at why Facebook works so well. Um, it goes to what Mark said. They had these high-quality networks. You know, initially, if you look at a lot of the colleges in the U.S., they had a lot of international students. So they'd go home and they were ambassadors within those markets. And then they would open up, you know, in these these sort of tighter tighter networks within those markets. And that worked really well because you have to have kind of this critical mass and a network and a social graph for it to actually, you know, be a catalyst for for a user to want to come back and actually use the experience. So. Um, you know, I think there's there's also the, again it's not one of these like there's no silver bullet. There were a bunch of lead bullets. Like there were things that we could have done better and faster. Um, one of the ways, oftentimes, uh, uh, networks grow is by taking advantage of um, existing graphs and channels for um, uh, uh, reaching people really quickly. So uh, we had a broken address book importer for a very long time, which is a, uh, kind of a silly thing to say, but it actually was a, had a really detrimental effect because every time somebody signed out, signed up, your broken address book importer failed to take advantage of the hundreds of people within that person's network in order to create, you know, and stimulate more of a graph. Um, so, you know, I think that we could have taken uh, an approach that would have been more based on um, the, building out the product uh, for, you know, kind of creating those networks more effectively rather than trying to do it through events and through sort of you know the cultural phenomenon that worked so in the So maybe US. product more than like cultural events. Exactly. Um, in 2009, you decided to leave, right? Mm -hmm. uh, yes. Yeah. And I don't know, MySpace was still a big deal back then. They're How does big. one come to the conclusion at 26, 27 to quit COO role of a major company that it wasn't clear that it was going to go through decline? Yeah. And, and how did you communicate that without getting <laughs> punched? Uh, 
you know, I, I, it was sort of the f uh, frame of mind that I was in at the time. I, um, it was certainly would have been safe to stay. I, I also had opportunities to go join other large internet companies in a senior role, and that would have been a safe role. I mean, some of these companies are, went public, and yeah. I, you know, I would have done very well. But I wanted, I had, I wanted to prove to myself that I could do it. You know, build a company out of nothing, and. Uh, and so it was kind of just a personal journey that I wanted to go on. And at the time, also, my two co-founders are uh, Jim Benedetto, Steve Pierman. Um, we had worked together uh, for a very long time at MySpace. When we first joined, we were each basically the lieutenant to each one of the founders. So I was kind of Chris's lieutenant. Steve was the first product manager, so he's Tom's lieutenant. And uh, Jim was Aber, the CTO's lieutenant. And so, so they, they uh, all at the same time lost their number yeah, two. Yeah. And when those pillars came out, the whole thing crashed. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't, I, you know. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm teasing. Um, so, but how did yeah. you come up with the idea for Gravity? I'll get you off the hook. Well, so, uh, we, so we knew that we wanted to work together. Uh, we knew we wanted to start a company together for a while. And, uh, and so we didn't want to just start another social network. We wanted to try to do something different, try to actually think about what was the next big thing. And to us, when we thought about, okay, so what makes social so powerful? What makes Facebook so powerful? In MySpace at the time, it was um, these, the, this social graph, this, this, this underlying organization, of the ability to organize data and information based on the person that's sharing it. And to us, that basically was served as a proxy for your interests. Like you, you have friends that sometimes share common interests with you, sometimes they don't. And when they don't, that's the noise that you get in your streams, right? So to us, when we thought about it, we thought about what's going to happen after the social graph. And we had this notion that uh, if you could identify a person's interests, not, not who are they attached to, but what are they attached to at a very granular level, then you could take any, anything on the internet, the entire internet itself, and organize it just for that person. Um, you could connect them with people that share common interests with them, not just people that they may have a, sh have a shared experience with. You could connect them with commerce items that they you know, will be interested in based on their, their graph as well. So we really had this very abstract concept of an interest graph. Right. And we, you know, we, we thought it was really powerful, and so we wanted to go out and, and try to. When you, so you were able to start with $10 million. So one of the huge benefits of true. You know, achieving that success gives you the ability to start with a lot of capital. Yep. Um, so you were able to have some time to really experiment with what you wanted to create. Did you think you wanted to have an end user site in the same way MySpace was? In the beginning, yeah. yeah. So when we thought about how, um, if you want to capture this interest graph, the way that Facebook or MySpace would capture a social graph, uh, instead of figuring out how you engage a person or, um, uh, with their friends, how can you help that person engage with things that are interesting to them? And so we had a notion of you know, the place that people do that online for the most part right now, I mean, historically, it was in uh, message boards and forums. And we thought that that environment was ripe for disruption. And I, you know, in, a, in a way, I still think that it is. Yeah. Um, Next so. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, we set out to build a consumer experience around that, and we figured if we can get everybody, you know, think about like a Quora, but instead of answering questions, you're actually engaging in conversations around your interests, then we could capture this really rich graph that way. I mean, is there any analogy with what Chris Dixon tried to do at Hunch? There's, some, there's definitely some similarities there for sure. I think Chris and those guys, you know, had a, you know they, they called it the taste graph. Yeah. Similarly, it was uh, if you can figure out 
what a person's interested in by asking them a bunch of questions, um, then you know that's really powerful but information. You have on the internet something called the cold start problem. Yep. Which is a very small percentage of users who go to a website will actually engage with the content, express interest until they've already bought into your website. Yeah. So overwhelmingly, people come to your website, you don't really know who they are, and therefore can't personalize. I mean, I think one of the great unsolved problems of the internet is still personalization. For example, you know, you go to TripAdvisor and you want to select a hotel, but it's really hard to get a recommendation of people who are kind of like you. Right. We know uh, Yelp is very similar. Mm -hmm. You have the Yelp problem where unless you're in a young, cost-conscious demographic, you're not likely getting served. Yeah. Uh, I'm neither. Yeah. Um, I'm <laughs> less so young. <laughs> Sometimes cost-conscious, but uh, less so young. And so like noisy, like boisterous uh, restaurants may not be of interest to me. Uh, but I know there's been a number of them like Ness, and Soch mm -hmm. and a number of mobile ones trying to solve this problem. No one seems to have solved it. And even when I think about some of your second wave vision of personalizing news sites, I still go to the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal and I still see the same shitty news that everybody else does, mm -hmm. even though it's digital, not physical. Why is that? I think that it's it's inevitable that we get to a place where your experiences are highly personalized to you and your interests. It's, it's, um, it's, it's a matter of the, the systems themselves being smart enough to be able to, one, capture enough data on you to have a really comprehensive picture of who you are, what your interests are, and then to be able to apply it in real time with massive amounts of options um, so that it is a, a really you know, rich, high-quality, relevant experience. Where you ended up at Gravity was less about a consumer expressing uh, explicit preferences to you per se, yep. but you collecting information on the web somewhat implicitly. Some of it was explicit, sure. but not explicit oh, The vast majority is implicit. Yeah, yeah. so yeah. sharing and how long I read a site and what yep. I click on. and yeah. So talk about how you came to that realization and how you balance the privacy concerns of individuals with the benefit that I get from you having all this information. Okay. Um, two big questions. Yeah. So the first one, how we got there, um, as with, I think, you know, the vast majority of startups, um, you have constant sort of twists and curves along the way. Um, and, and to us, we still had this grand vision of this interest graph, this notion of if we can under identify a person's interests, then we can create these amazing experiences for them. So how we got that data, we shifted away from a consumer experience and started to realize that if we can actually look implicitly at the thing, at the content that you're interacting with, the stories you're reading, the videos you're playing, the stuff that you're sharing, we can build a much better graph than we could off of just the siloed data on an individual website. And so that's when we kind of moved away from the building a consumer experience into, well, let's actually be more like infrastructure for other websites to personalize their experiences. And in doing so, we can capture the data on your, your sports interests on a sports site like ESPN, your finance interests on a finance site like the Wall Street Journal, um, you know, so on and so on, and, and aggregate all that information so that we get this really rich, holistic picture of who you are and what you're interested and in. And you didn't, per se, have ESPN's consent to track the information on ESPN? No, you 
have to be a partner of ours okay. uh, in order for us to uh, be able to track the, the user through the site. Okay. Uh, but we have a lot of very big partners um, okay. right now, as you know. Yes. And, um, and the, I, I should have disclosed I wasn't yeah. withholding it, but I was yeah. an investor in Gravity, yeah. so we worked together. Yes. Um, so, uh, so that's how we kind of came to the sense of uh, wanting to capture implicit data and wanting to realize that vision that you talked about earlier of you, you shouldn't go to a website and have it be the same generic experience that everybody else gets. It should understand you. It should adapt to you. It should learn from you. It should get better in time. And I think that you know, we are on the cusp of making that happen. You know, there is this sort of inflection point that's happening right now where you are going to start to see sites get smarter and smarter. And Gravity is going to be one of the companies driving that change. And I guess you know, one thing that struck me from our original conversations is that your interests markedly change over time. Mm -hmm. You know, the example I often give is there's a period of time that you're interested in baby strollers, uh, and it's a very short period of time. Yeah. Uh, and yet, it, you know, so you've got to be able to track my interests over time. For example, elections. Mm -hmm. You might become suddenly very interested in Barack Obama or Mitt Romney, mm -hmm. but your life isn't probably defined by them, but for maybe nine months it is. Yeah. So how, how did you deal with that? Yeah, it's a, it's a massive big data problem. And so we have an incredible engineering team that we hired to, to, uh, to solve all of that. Um, it, 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 it very much that it, that is a, a key aspect to what makes our system so great is that you as a person are dynamic. Your interests are constantly changing, they're evolving. And so we can actually detect that and we can look at it for you as an individual as well as at particular interests. So baby strollers is one of those interests that has a high propensity to be, to have a half-life decay of, you know, X basically. Right. So did um, you have a taxonomy structure and then you knew certain characteristics of certain nodes in the yep. taxonomy? Yeah, we, we, we actually have something bigger than a taxonomy, it's called an ontology. So okay. a taxonomy is a more of a rigid hierarchy of how things relate, so, uh, you know, uh, BMW is an automobile, uh, you know, uh, which is a mode of transportation, et cetera. Right. But like, we know that you know, BMW is uh, uh, based in Germany. We know that it's uh, people that like luxury items are also connected to BMW. There's, there's all of these uh, nodes that are attached to it that aren't directly structurally attached to it, and that's what makes an ontology. So that's right. a key part of our backend system. Right. So people interested in BMW may also be interested in Rolex or Mercedes mm -hmm. or Beats by Dre or exactly. Virgin Atlantic or whatever. Exactly, yeah. Um, one of the questions you kind of asked was from a privacy standpoint, yeah. so how did we think about that also? Mm -hmm. So, um, Did users express concerns? Or? No, actually, so the way that we think about things, so um, one of the th reasons that we think what we do is so important is that it, a lot of people will say, well, Facebook has a lot of data on you, and of course they have an incredible amount of data on you. Um, but I think people sometimes, uh, oftentimes, uh, are fearful of how Facebook might use that personal data. And especially, it has to do with the fact that you use Facebook within a social context. Like, they've launched products historically where, you know, whether it was Beacon or some of these other products where uh, something that you might consider personal ends up getting shared in the feed, and yeah. you're shocked because of that. So to us, this notion of your social identity and your personal identity are actually very distinct things. So what we're trying to do with Gravity is actually build this personal identity that is safe, it's secure, it's only for you, it's only there to make your experience better. You and the NSA. Yeah, <laughs> no dealings with the NSA that I know of. Yeah. Uh, 
that, uh, and, that, and that's what makes it very valuable. And I think that that kind of value exchange is very important with the user um, in getting them comfortable with that data actually being contributed into our system is that you're going to get a better experience as a result of it. If you want to opt out, if you want to you know, change your preferences, you're welcome to do that. But that just means you're going to get a substandard experience. Do you have examples today of where your technology is being used to provide me a better content experience as opposed to a better ad experience? Oh, yeah. Or is that stuff that's coming in the future? No, I'm, uh, the vast majority of our partnerships are, are content experiences. Are there any you can talk about? Yeah, of course. I mean, the, the biggest ones are the AOL properties, yeah. right? So we're live on you know, uh, the Huffington Post and TechCrunch and Engadget and AOL.com. So if AOL. I go to TechCrunch today, mm -hmm. The content that I see may be different than the content you see or yep. these people see? Yep, it, it is. It is, right now. not yeah. just the ads. No, not just the ads, yeah. So um, it's happening, uh, you know, without you even knowing it, your experience is actually getting better. And we have the data to show that you engage more with that site. Um, and, you know, that's sort of our measurement for user happiness as a right. result. And let's talk a little bit about the acquisition. I want people to understand how companies get acquired. Um, did AOL just call you one day and say, hey, we're thinking we need personalization technology? Like, how did it happen? Um, so it was a, it's always a long process. Like we, we, at the time, as you know, and we weren't looking to sell. That wasn't our objective. Um, we were, you know, we were on a good path and we yeah. had a great trajectory. Um, but with AOL, uh, we were working with a number of their properties. So um, a lot of people actually aren't familiar with a lot of the things that AOL does, but you know, they have their membership business, but they also own and operate a lot of the biggest sites on the web. So uh, sites like the Huffington Post, TechCrunch, Engadget, Daily Finance, they have these uh, home style sites, all, all these different sites on the web. And we were working with a handful of them and they were seeing you know, incredible results and lift from that relationship. Um, so it, it kind of was a natural fit where we started to, our conversation started to escalate where it got to a level where their head of product and I were talking. Um, it, it, but it wasn't so smooth as, oh, hey, you know, you're working with a few of our sites. You should, right. you should come in. As, as you know, there were a lot of other but, factors. But from my experience, the best M&A opportunities start with business development. Mm -hmm. And it's not like you can do a deal and then two months later they want to buy you. So I do think it's, look, you don't set out to sell a company, mm -hmm. generally speaking. But if you want to have that opportunity open up for you, in years two, three, four, eight, whatever, it begins with a journey. And often that journey is biz dev related. And I find that yeah. it's a combination of a business case, like in the case of Gravity, where you could show an uplift in the amount of time people spend on AOL sites by using your tech, uh, as well as a belief that the senior management has in you mm -hmm. and your ability to help them grow the company because even for these big companies, they're constrained by executive talent, people with new ideas. I mean, you think about what Instagram has brought to Facebook, for mm -hmm. example. Um, so I just point that out to people, like BizDev is often the starting point. 100%. And then how does it go from there to, uh, should we get married? Yeah. Um, 
Well, you know, there's a lot of boxes that need to get checked along the way, yeah. right? And um, I think, you know, you raised some really good points. So, you know, the BizDev relationship um, definitely was a, you know, a very strong indicator that this, this could be a good relationship. But uh, you also have to uh, make sure that there's a, a good cultural fit, right? That, like, if they're going to bring this company in, are we all going to get along really well so this thing's going to work? Because if we don't, then, you know, um, if there's cl too much clash, like, you know, there was a fair amount of clash with News Corp MySpace, for example, yeah. that it might not work out as well. And that happens quite often with yeah. companies, right? Um, and another factor is, uh, so, you know, big companies like AOL have opportunities to buy, you know, pretty much anything that they want to. Um, but are you strategically aligned with the vision that they've laid out? And so they may have, you know, uh, three big initiatives for the next year. And if you happen to be one of those initiatives, I mean, that's a very important thing for the acquisition to really go through um, because, uh, you know, they may have a, a lot of great opportunities. They do have a lot of great opportunities uh, of companies that they could buy, but you need to make sure you, you know, you so make the right it's decisions. Interesting. Is it Luke Beatty? Is that? Luke Beatty. Luke Beatty. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so he runs product at AOL. Mm -hmm. I often tell people there's different types of acquisitions. There's a product acquisition. There's a revenue acquisition, and a lot of people think the right place in a company to start with is corporate development, because corporate development are the people who do the acquisition. And in some companies, corporate development is the right department, but it's actually seldom the case. Yeah, I think for the most part, it's corporate development might facilitate a, a, a networking connection. Yeah, it's almost like uh, the lawyer when you want to do a commercial deal, you have to get the business unit on board to buy your product, yep. and then a lawyer has to get involved, and if it's a big company, they'll have procurement get involved to break your kneecap a little bit, and yeah. the lawyers want to like throw out indemnity clauses that you struggle to understand. Um, but I think M&A works very similarly. So finding product people, understanding what the white space is in their product plans, and then they're making a very classic build versus buy decision, which mm -hmm. is, do we have the resources? Do we have the money? Do we have the knowledge to build in this area? And if not, should we purchase someone? Mm -hmm. And you've got to be a good fit for someone's white space. Absolutely. And, and it helps if you fit the white space of more than one company. Yes, yeah. If you only have one buyer, good luck. It's true, very true. So without naming names, we had multiple people interested in buying. Yes. Gravity. Yeah. Um, what drove your decision to sell to AOL? Uh, there were a bunch of reasons, as you know. I, I think um, and so. The you know one of them is it, we were we were kind of at a time where we were evalu evaluating a couple companies um, as potentially having you know being acquired by them. We were also looking ahead to okay, um, the next stage of the company would be going out and raising another round of funding. And so we were in the same sort of you know sell versus build kind yeah. of yeah. Uh, evaluation, and um, and the the other the other company we were looking at um, one the culture wasn't exactly right for us, okay. uh, and two um, they had a little bit less white space to, to use your term right. in in the area that uh, we we would focus on. And so with AOL, we had a very strong cultural fit. Um, we, for, you know, first, I guess, we had the right terms, right? Yeah. Like this was a deal financially that made sense to all of us, to our investors, yeah. to our employees would do well. Um, so that box was checked. 
And then, you know, culturally, they're actually they're a great company. They, they, they let us run standalone and autonomous. We get to stay in Santa Monica. They encourage us to keep surfing every morning before work. Like, you know, we, we, had, a, we had a good deal there. Yeah. Um, and then the other aspect is that they didn't have anybody working on personalization. Yet they had this huge, you know, all these huge sites that to us represented this opportunity to realize this vision that we had for very long um, in a very big way, taking on a very key role in the company. And and you know, uh, it, it had the potential to be very fulfilling and very fulfilling on you know by by maintaining the culture that we always had that let us work so well together. Well, to any potential buyers watching this show, I will tell you my own experience from watching you with AOL and other unnamed parties. AOL moved fast. Mm -hmm. They honored their commitments to meetings and analysis. They said they were going to do. They understood that one of your buyer values was to stay in LA mm -hmm. and to build the company in LA. And so they like understood your buyer criteria and met them, mm -hmm. or your seller criteria. And I see all too often corporate acquisitions take way too long to build internal consensus to mm -hmm. buy. Yeah. And you just yeah. lose steam as a seller. Yeah. If you don't need to sell, you just move on. I mean, if you look at at least Mark Zuckerberg, uh, you could fault him or credit him with his M&A, but like when he decides he wants something, he goes and gets it. Yeah, and I think in, in general, whether it's with an acquisition, a fundraise, um, uh, the, the, ha having some kind of deadline is, yeah. is incredibly important to actually getting, getting it done and yeah. having some competition where you know, there's a chance of, of missing out is, is what tends to push things you know, yeah. towards meeting those kinds of deadlines, so I, I completely agree. Um, I just want to open it for anyone who might like to uh, ask a question. I have a really well-organized, <laughs> comprehensive set of questions to keep asking. Does anyone want to raise a hand? Right here. Do you have any recommendation for anyone who's kind of embarking on this dev about how to sort of prioritize who to kind of go after in terms of your primary? And your, your name and your company? If you, you don't have to say it if you don't want to, but if you want to. My name is Chris Bechtel, and I'm with Mm -hmm. Chris Bechtel, Blue Deer, wants to know uh, any recommendations you have for people on BizDev. I'm just repeating it yeah. so it's on microphone for the camera. Chris, what, uh, really briefly, like what, what area, space is your company in? Well, actually, I do consulting for startups. Yeah. So, and I really believe in a process for this, which yeah. is kind of based on the prioritization. Yeah. I'm more in a SaaS or software service, B2B. Yeah, yeah. So you know, SaaS BizDev. Yeah, <laughs> you could probably answer this question maybe even better than that. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, you know, I, BizDev is one of, one of the things I've done for a very long time, and just doing partnerships is something I've done for a very long time. And um, uh, you, you can't, you know, you don't want to spread yourself too thin by trying to, you know, blast and partner with everybody. I, I've always been a big believer in doing fewer but much more meaningful partnerships. And, um, you know, the most important thing anytime you're doing a deal, especially as a startup, like you're not trying to get the best terms and win on every point, right? That's, that's irrelevant. It's about alignment of interests, right? And sometimes just getting your foot in the door. So uh, if you believe that you're going to work with somebody that, where your interests in the long term are aligned, then, you know, do whatever deal it takes to get in the door and start working together and then build from there. Um, and that historically has served me well, at least in the companies I've worked with. And so I would point out that biz dev for biz dev's sake is usually a mistake. Mm -hmm. And I see many companies do this because 
you hire a couple of Stanford MBAs, you give them the title of biz dev, and their metric for success is deals done. And so they go out and they generate a lot of demand to do deals, and I think it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy, not something I could point my finger and say it's their fault. Mm -hmm. But really, it has to, I think you really have to understand the business objective you're going after. Yeah. So I'll I give agree. you an example in a SaaS company. I see a lot of people who will do reseller agreements or VAR agreements, and their measure of success is I got these 18 companies, one in the Philippines, two in China, one in India, two in the hospitality, one in healthcare, and they're gonna do reselling and whatever. But you don't realize what is it gonna take, not just to benefit my company, but you said it, alignment of interest to the other company. So when I'm involved as a VC, I always squash these discussions because my starting point is, this company in the healthcare sector or the Philippines or wherever, if you haven't figured out how to sell your product significantly, they don't have a chance. So there'll be someone on the other side who's like, yes, I got this biz dev deal done, and now we can do a press release, right? Mm -hmm. But their organization is not gonna spend the capital, either economically or human capital, to really make you successful unless you're successful in your own right. So a lot of these biz dev deals to me become press releases, mm -hmm. and you just waste everybody's time and energy. So I think you really have to understand your objectives and what you're trying to achieve. I think less is more. And I think fundamentally you have to understand the psychology of the other partner and why do they want this. And if they really don't want this, I would be reluctant do to do it even yeah. if it would be good for you. Yeah. And I wanna echo one last point that Amit made, which is uh, my biggest mistake as an entrepreneur in business development was trying to win too many points. And I feel like I was a reasonable negotiator, so I'd win a fair number of points. But <clears throat> I feel like the velocity of getting started with a really important partner would have been way more important to me than winning a few extra terms. And yeah, you could get locked into bad terms, but more often than not, getting in the door is just an entry point to build relationships to strengthen and renegotiate a deal. Mm -hmm. Who else has questions? Over here in the hat. Uh, I'm curious. Your name and company? It's uh, Joe Conley. I'm a USCI student here at General Assembly. So my question is around the mentality in terms of going from CEO and co-founder to now employee of a company. How does that factor in? Like, what kind of transformation you see yourself making? Because obviously it's a different situation for you. Sure. Um, it's, you know, the, the cool thing with AOL, the way it's worked out so far, is uh, that it, I'm, what I'm doing is not that much different. Still, you know, um, you know, we're out here kind of on our own in, in Santa Monica. We've got a standalone unit. We have clear objectives that we're trying to hit. And uh, we get to run our team, you know, as if it were, you know, a standalone company, you know, trying to hit those objectives. So it hasn't been that big of a difference. I mean, I think certainly there are aspects where there are, um, you know, you've got certain horizontal functions across the company that are taken over, like, you know, more HR and finance and things like that, that um, involved a little bit of extra work or different work than, uh, than when you were just doing it and figuring it out on your own. Um, but, you know, even before, when you're running a company, you know, it's good to have people to answer to because they give you some sense of, you know, they, 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 they sit outside of the, you know, outside of the forest, so they can see the forest through the trees, right? So 
uh, before it was, you know, I would, we'd have board meetings, right? So I had a board that I had to, you know, I'd set objectives for and would have to hit those objectives and, um, and they would help provide some guidance and, and ask some questions, even if I didn't agree with it all the time, but at least, you know, <laughs> at least it would let me question. I think having a sparring partner is quite it's useful, healthy. Yeah. Right? You, you hold yourself more accountable. Yep. And like you said, even if you don't agree with it, having that opposing view just forces you to be yeah. on your A game a bit more. Totally agree. And so in this case, you know, the, my, the people that I answer to now are, are you know, the, the senior execs at AOL. So it, it, it's really good so far. You know, I, I'm, I'm enjoying it. Any other questions from the audience? Okay, so I want to talk a little bit about LA. Do you feel like there are limitations in LA of your ability to hire world-class engineers or product managers? Uh, where are the gaps? How do you fill the gaps? Mm -hmm. um, so when we left MySpace and, and started Gravity, we knew that we were going to have to, we, we wanted to build a world-class engineering team. Like we are, Steve and Jim and I are all technologists at, at heart, and, uh, and we wanted it to be a technology-first company. And we had concerns around that early on. Like could we, you know, maybe we could hire, you know, a handful of people, but could we scale that? And, uh, and I think, you know, I think it's pretty clear that you can scale a high-tech company in LA, right? Like we've got, you know, in our company, we have about 50 people, a majority of which are engineering and product, and they are incredible people. Um, there, there isn't a Facebook or Google in LA yet. And so, you know, I, I do wonder, like, can you cross that, that chasm of going from a mid-sized company to a really large engineering company in LA? Um, Historically, there have been some big, big engineering companies in LA, specifically around the aerospace. You know, right? Um, and so, I think it's certainly possible. I mean, even there are other epicenters uh, with large companies like like Seattle with or you know Washington with Amazon and and, and Microsoft. So it's possible to do that. Um, and I think that you know, LA is kind of really starting to come into form right now too. Uh, there's been a number of exits, there's been a lot of activity lately, um, and I think it's really sort of exposing us to the fact that there is all of this great technology talent um, within all of these companies, and it may not have the density and scale of, uh, of the valley, it, it, it's never going to be the valley, but it can be a very strong technology you know, presence in the U.S., I think. Now, just a couple more questions and we'll wrap. What things, what mistakes did you make along the way, whether MySpace, Gravity, now at AOL, that you could look back and say, I'd wish I'd done X differently, that you could give advice to people coming behind? Hmm. I should have started a disappearing photo company. So that's a good question. Um, You know, I'll, I'll tee up an yeah. easy one for you. At Gravity, mm -hmm. in the early days, you had a pretty broad vision. Mm -hmm. um, do you, you don't have to agree with this, so I'm not putting you on the spot here, I'm just trying to give you a bit more direction in the question. Do you feel like you could have either narrowed your scope faster, or do you think you could have gone through product market fit faster? Because it kind of took you two to two and a half years to really, I mean, do you think raising $10 million out of the gate 
meant that you didn't have enough pressure to solve the answers quick enough? Or? Well, you've got to take the market, you know, the, the market at the time into account. So in today's environment, I would not have done. I would not do that. You know, I, I because it's not that it's. It, it, it is easier, like there's much more capital, capital available. There's also a lot more competition for it, no question. But at the time, in 2009, there were very few deals getting done. The world right? was ending. The world was ending. March 2009. Yeah, there was. Uh, I was ready to pack it yeah. in. It was weird because it was like I graduated when the world was ending, yeah. and then I left MySpace when the world was ending. So, so. Uh, so the best opportunities <laughs> that come for you is yeah. when, when, the, when world the world is ending. Is ending. Yeah. Um, so at the time, we were looking at the market and saying, well, you know, we have this opportunity to raise a lot of capital and have as long of a runway to figure this out uh, as we can. And I think that that was a smart decision for us, um, given those circumstances. So I, I don't think that I would have done differently. Okay, so start a photo sharing. Yeah. Disappearing yeah. photo company. Yeah. <laughs> what, do you, what do you think of um, anonymous apps? They seem to have been in the news a lot lately. Yeah. Um, you know, I think one of the things is I, I think back to, you know, now that MySpace is sort of gone, right? Like, I mean, it's, it's still operate. Justin Timberlake's doing something around it. And, is no, it? I don't know. Uh, there's, better than Justin Bieber. Yeah. <laughs> no, I know there's some, some, some folks that, that bought it. I'm not close with it anymore. Um, but I do think that the notion of um, a place to express yourself online is still, uh, you, you can do it to a certain degree on Twitter, uh, to a certain degree on Tumblr. But I mean but the anonymous apps like Secret and Whisper. I, and, no, you're saying, yeah. yeah. But I, the, the reason, I, one of the reasons I think that they, what they're doing touches a really interesting room is that you, you can express yourself in a really interesting way that you're not you know, held back, okay. um, which I think is a really powerful thing. Is it a pushback but, from the... You know, you had Friendster where you had to be yourself, MySpace where you could yeah. be hidden a little bit and experiment, back to Facebook where you had to be yourself. Is it just the natural pendulum pulling back? Yeah, it could be. I think that maybe um, we will, there's no question that to me that we will always have a, a real identity online now. Um, now we may have multiple identities, right? And so I think, you know, and we do, like we have a work identity on LinkedIn, we have a social identity on Facebook. Um, this is an, a new type of identity where we can express ourselves without the hindrances of, of or baggage of, of somebody actually knowing who you are. And I think that's a really powerful thing. So it I, also I think has the downside because you can express false information, oh, hateful information, absolutely. slanderous information. Yeah. And somehow societally we haven't adjusted I think we will, yeah. but we haven't adjusted to naturally being skeptical of the information that we're seeing in these yeah. apps. It's, it's not that far from, I mean, in a way, um, psychologically to how you, op how you behave in a chat room or how you'd behave in a, in a, in a forum or message board, right? So, but but it's, it's, it's you know, mobily enabled, it's a beautiful interface. And it gives you the patina of knowing who this person is yep. because it says true. it's a friend or a friend of a friend. And it yeah. sort of feels it's like It's very intriguing in that sense, yeah. Yeah, because when I had something bad written about me on Secret, which is inevitable, yep. not just because I'm a bad person, no. but, <laughs> but uh, as, a, as a fairly open, uh, opinionated venture capitalist. Yep. Um, and what someone pointed out is this was, oh my God, this is a friend of Mark Suster. Yeah. But I, I'm in my contacts is anyone I've ever met at a conference at anyone. Mm -hmm. So by definition, friend for me is like 20,000 people. Yeah. Uh, probably 12,000 of which I don't even know if I saw him in person. <laughs> but uh, but yeah. it creates this patina of it being a friend. I mean, my argument to 
the anonymous apps was you needed authority overlaid on it mm -hmm. so that someone can't just say, uh, I saw Amit Kapoor drunk and passed out licking uh, barf off the ground in Santa Monica. Wow. Uh, <laughs> I don't know how my mind went there. <laughs> but, it's pretty but, extreme. <laughs> but, but if someone with a high degree of authority as measured by some level of past engagement says that mm -hmm. versus someone who might just be a complete troll says that, yeah. then at least that information has some authority to it. It's kind of like uh, when you leave a review on Amazon. Having or, some credibility yeah. and authority, yeah. And I, and I think I these systems need to <clears throat> build that sense of authority in. So yeah. I do want to say, as I bring this to a close, for those of you who don't know, I travel a lot, I meet a lot of people in the tech sector, I have a lot of relationships with big companies and small, and universally, perhaps, the most liked person that I've come across is Ahmed. <laughs> and uh, wow. universally loved. Thank but you. I think Appreciate it's, it's really been wonderful, and uh, not just seeing the community reaction to you, both in your business development, when you got your company sold, but the employees and people who work with you, because I talked to a lot of them about the company. So cool. I just want to thank you for being an important part of the Thanks, LA man. community. I and, appreciate that. And very specifically for coming on the show today. So awesome. thank you. Thank you. <laughs>